Family, it's a privilege to share God's word with you today. And we're going to be continuing in our series from the book of Nehemiah titled Rebuild and Rejoice. And we're going to be reading from chapter four of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, please do turn there. But before we do, I guess I want to just do a bit of a recap so that we can already, I guess, see what has already taken place. So in chapter one, we meet Nehemiah, this butler, this cupbearer to the king. And after a visit from some men from his hometown, he finds out about the plight, the trouble and the shame that the people of God, the Jews and the city of God, Jerusalem, are facing. And as Andrew shared with us a few weeks ago, Nehemiah's response is not just a bland one. He doesn't just say, oh, well, I'm in Susa, they're in Judah, I've got a nice job and they probably don't. No, the Bible tells us that he is moved to weeping, that he's moved to fasting and he's moved to prayer for himself and his people in response to God and hoping really in God's promises. You see, Nehemiah knew that the same God who scattered them because of their unfaithfulness was the same God who would regather them because of his faithfulness. Four months later, we arrive in chapter two and Nehemiah has been carrying this burden for a while, this burden to go back into Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. Talk about patience and God's timing. And he's approached by the king of Persia after daily conversations with the king of kings and he finds favor. And this shouldn't be really a surprise to us because the word tells us the king's heart, that's speaking of any governor, ruler, or even any authority under God, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. You see, the king not only allows Nehemiah to go back to Judah, but he provides resources for this building project itself. It's also in chapter two where we first hear of the enemies of this building project, the enemies of the Jews who rise up to bring and cause discouragement, which we're gonna to touch on in a moment. Then in chapter three, the building work begins and we see all types of people involved in this work. We see priests, we see business owners, we see distinguished people, lowly people, and even women, because in that day, it was, and even today, to be honest, it wasn't expected that women will partake in a building project. So what do we see there? We see an Old Testament picture of how we, the body of Christ, are to work together collectively, bringing ourselves and our unique talents and treasures to serve the work and purposes of Jesus Christ in our generation. Now, if you're an avid, maybe happily ever after movie watcher, and not so much an avid Bible reader, you'd be excused if you thought that this next chapter was just gonna say, and they worked together cheerfully, and the war was completed, the end. But for most of us, we know just through reality, life has taught us something different, that in life, obstacles do arise. You do some gardening today, and then next week, you see those same weeds that you've pulled out growing again. And as the church, we must know, not just in our minds, but in practice, that whenever we're intent on doing the will of God, be it preaching the gospel, loving our wives, loving other people who have maybe offended us, raising kids to follow and walk with Christ, forgiving one another, gathering as the saints on a Sunday. We have an enemy, the devil, opposition, who rises up to withstand that work. Like Israel's enemies, he is displeased that someone has come to seek the welfare of the world. Nehemiah left Susa left Persia to come to Judah to seek the welfare 
of Israel. And Jesus Christ leaves heaven to seek the welfare of the world. And we, the church, have been saved by him and we're caught up in that work of seeing people brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, he famously wrote this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, he's talking about the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, if I was to do a humble assessment of Christianity in the West and even an honest assessment of my heart and really my default, I'd say we fall into the camp that disbelieves in the devil's existence. We have to be honest. We're not all the way there yet, I can grant that, but in practice, we can live so unaware of his schemes and that shouldn't be so. And so by the grace of God, as we read this passage, what I'm hoping is that we as a church, we will see the reality of opposition the response to opposition and the reformation that should take place in us after receiving or enduring opposition from the enemy. So that as we seek to rebuild as a church, we do so effectively, one, aware of the devil's schemes, but most importantly, trusting in the power of Christ to frustrate them and give us success. So now I'm gonna read from Nehemiah chapter four. Now, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. 
From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Amen. So right from verse one, we see the presence and reality of spiritual opposition. We read there that when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Now, up until this point, we know that the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was a moment for great joy for the people of God. So the obvious question is, why was Sambalat and his cohort so vexed? Why were they angry at this building activity? I can imagine if you could speak to him, you might have grabbed him and said, bro, look, it's just the wall, stones. Why are you so angry? And I believe he would respond by saying, it's not just the wall. That wall represents safety for the people of God. That wall represents protection. That wall represents the removal of shame. That wall reduces my ability to harm God's people. This is what Sambalat sees as the wall is being rebuilt and hence his anger and church. This is also true for us as well. The Holy Spirit tells us in Ephesians 6 verse 11 to 12, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These are our enemies, church. Spiritual opposition that is headed by the devil. And as we, I guess as we seek to rebuild the church post this pandemic, what do you think they see. They don't just see some nice people heading into buildings in Southeast London and singing and then someone comes up to give a speech and then we close and rinse and repeat that for the next week. No, what do they see? They realize that this represents the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached and people being saved. That it represents more people hearing the truth of God, growing in holiness, being set free from sin and the lies of the devil that it represents people coming together to serve one another, to fellowship rather than just focusing on ourselves, that it represents baptisms where people are testifying to the new life that they have in Christ and us taking the Lord's Supper and being reminded that the Son of God loved us and he's given himself for us. Now do you see why he's angry and why he plots against us, the church? But to what end? What's the goal of this opposition? Well, we read in verse 11, Nehemiah writes, he says, our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop 
the work. All that their enemies wanted from them was just to stop rebuilding the walls. Simple, just stop. Just stop doing the work that God has called you to. And in our context as a church, that can mean just stop gathering as the people of God in person and remain online. Just stop fellowshipping and caring for one another, but instead hide behind your vertical relationship with the Lord. Just stop giving yourselves to serving each other in love. Just stop praying for the work of the church. Just stop holding on and declaring the truth in public. Just stop, just stop. And our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, he knew this reality well. Most of us might have read Matthew, um, the Gospel of Matthew before, but in that, um, in, that, in that record, in that book, Jesus, you see him telling his disciples that he's heading to Jerusalem and that he's going to suffer, be killed and rise again. But what happens? Peter calls him aside, calls him aside and utters words to him to the effect of, just stop. And what was Jesus' response? Was it, get behind me, Peter? No, it was, get behind me, Satan. You see, Jesus knew. And in that one encounter, he shows us that all our enemy wants, the goal of his opposition is that we stop as the church doing the work that God has called us to. Now quickly, how does he do it? How does he do it? In verse two, we read, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, talking about Sambalat, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Just complete mockery. But we see here, I guess, a few of the enemy strategies. The first is intimidation. You see, Sambalat didn't come alone. He came with an intimidating presence that was meant to stoke fear and paralysis into the hearts of God's people. And I can't lie, during this pandemic, the media has been used in a similar way to stoke fear into our hearts, fear of maybe death, fear of catching COVID. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take precaution, no, but we cannot and must not allow fear to hinder us as a church from doing and being who God has called us to be. This is one of these strategies. But in the second that we see, I guess, in these taunts is a majoring, a centering on the weakness of the Jews and the greatness of the task that's at hand. Don't be surprised that as we rebuild, the enemy starts to remind us as a church or maybe as individuals of our weaknesses. Maybe he says, oh, you're too old or you're too young or the church is ancient and irrelevant and you have to tailor yourselves to the culture or you're not as gifted or you're unfit for service. Maybe during this pandemic, you fell away from God and drifted, but he restored you and you start to hear the enemy say, what are you of all people trying to do serving and praying for others? That's one of these strategies and schemes. But what are we to do? How are we to respond? What should our response be to spiritual opposition? Well, in this chapter we've just read, we see a few, I guess, responses from the people of God. The first is in verses four to five, but we also see it in verses eight to nine. So I'm just gonna read verses eight to nine. It says, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. The first response by the people of God to opposition and the most foundational one is prayer. They responded by speaking first to God rather than speaking to their enemies. Remember our fight church is not against flesh and blood. But I wanna draw out a few things that were either said or even accomplished by their prayers so that we can see the powerful role 
prayer to God plays in responding to spiritual opposition. So towards the end of verse five, after the first insult from Sambalat, Nehemiah says this in prayer to God. He says, they, talking about their enemies, have provoked you, God, to anger. Now I've got a trick question. Who did Sambalat insult? Was it God or the Jews? I mean, if we just take verse two into account, we would obviously say he insulted the Jews. But when we take the entirety of scripture and God's covenant promise, we clearly see that an insult against God's people is an insult against God himself. Now that's beautiful because we are Christ's bride. If you insult my wife, you're insulting me. And if you insult Christ's bride, you are insulting him and our enemy therefore must answer to him. That's why when the enemy comes with his attacks and his taunts and mockery, we must pray in that way. Oh Lord, hear what he's saying, hear his threats. Because you see, God identifies with his people, not just when we're advancing, but also when we're under attack. But shortly after this prayer, we see in verse six that they were able to build the Jews because the people had a mind to work. You see, prayer centers our hearts and minds on God and his purposes. Without prayer, as a people, we'll be given over to discouragement. We will dwell on the taunts of the enemy and we will focus on the temporal setbacks rather than on the sure advance of Christ's kingdom. Whereas the devil wants to stop the work of God, prayer helps us to continue working. And God knows the amount of times during this season I've asked him, renew my mind because I've needed it. Isaiah 26 verse three says this, it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, prayer as a response to opposition, it gives us peace because it reminds us again and again of who, God, who, of who God is. That's the essence really of Nehemiah's charge to the people of God in verse 14, where he says to them, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember Yahweh who fought for Gideon. Remember him who was with David. Remember God who through Jesus Christ triumphed over the devil by nailing every one of our sin to the cross where he said it's finished. Remember him who said, I will build my church and my strength is made perfect in weakness because it's as we remember Jesus who is great and awesome that we as people, as the church, find spiritual grit, willpower and strength to withstand the accusation of the enemy in our own lives, but also find strength to fight for our brothers and sisters. So that when that brother or sister comes to you on a Sunday or even in your group and says, I've got this issue that I'm struggling with, you can come with a word in season that will see them set free because you've come with the truth. And I've experienced that so many times. People come in with words, liberating words that have helped to set me free from traps that the enemy has set up. Or even like we see in verse 15, God frustrating the plans of darkness by exposing them before his people. Church, prayer accomplishes this. And that's why we must respond to spiritual opposition with it. But before closing, I want to touch on something that I've kind of called the reformation after opposition. In other words, what should happen? What should take place in us as a people when and as we face spiritual opposition, especially in this rebuilding phase? You may have noticed that in this chapter, the response from the Jews towards their enemies, really, it evolves. 
as they realized the extent their enemies were willing to go to to stop the rebuilding of the walls. In verses four to five, after the first attack, we read that Nehemiah prays and then the people continue to build the wall. Then their enemies respond with even more anger. And then we read in verse nine, it says, they all pray, set a guard and continue building the wall. Then their enemies say, that's it. We're going to kill them. And then we see a sudden shift in their response. Instead of continuing to build the wall, they stop and prepare themselves for war. It's not that they didn't want to continue building. No, far from it. We see in the, I guess, the earlier verses that they were halfway there. But what they realised was that what? In order to complete this great work of God, builders, full-time builders alone, was not going to cut it. Their enemies weren't simply just coming to destroy the wall. No, they were coming to destroy them with it. They needed both builders and warriors who would put a stone to the wall and at the same time, pick up a sword, a spear and a bow to defeat the enemy. That's why after the final victory that we read about in verse 15, Nehemiah says this in verses 16 to 18, he says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, and bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So what does this mean for us, church? Am I saying that we should go out and start buying knives and bows and spears? No. But what it does mean is that as we rebuild, we must not underestimate nor, um, or really not underappreciate the role that prayer plays in effectively completing the work God has called us to. Yes, we must put our hands to the plough by sharing the gospel at Alpha, by gathering on Sundays, by singing songs of praise to God, by relaunching ministries, by helping the homeless through JRP and many more. But we must not become full-time construction workers, people of activity with no weapons of war, namely the gifts of God's salvation and prayer. We must also become warriors who fight through prayer, who hold the sword of the spirit and use it to withstand the enemy of God's work and his people. Someone sent this quote to me the other day, but it's by a guy called Samuel Chadwick, who was a 19th century minister. And he wrote this, he said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Church, we must pray. We must imbibe and, and have and cultivate that spirit of prayer. We must ask for grace from God to pray. because That's what we need. But most importantly, we must hope in him who the demons tremble before, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, who in his own life, his earthly ministry, wasn't just a builder, but he was a warrior through prayer, who before dying for our sins on the cross, he prayed to the Father and said, Father, protect them, the church, from the evil one, who after rising from the dead said, he will be with us, the church, always, and who right now from heaven continually, Hebrew says, prays for us, that our faith may not fail. Church, we have a saviour who is a builder. He is a builder of God's kingdom 
and of his church. And by his power, he will crush Satan under our feet. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the victory of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has triumphed over the evil one, over the kingdom of darkness. And thank you that as a church, we have been brought into the kingdom of your son, the kingdom of light. God, I pray that as we rebuild, as we step in to serve to oh Lord, serve your people, to serve one another, Lord God, to see your gospel advance, to reach out into our community and see, and see many people who are lost, saved, many people who are in need of help, oh Lord God, restored. I pray that you would help us, that you would help us to be a people who war through prayer, who fight on our knees, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen our hands to build, but you'd also strengthen our knees to pray. And God, I pray that you would increase our faith at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's now respond in song to the Lord.